Biblical conflict resolution is what we're going to talk about this morning. I want you to keep your place there in Matthew 18. I'll explain why we read what we read. We're going to be doing some, looking at some other passages as well. Our big idea here is that conflict, conflict is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to glorify God, to be conformed to the image of Christ, and to restore peace in the church. That's our big idea. And I'll go ahead and tell you the three areas of conflict we're going to look at, and that is conflict that begins in the heart. That'll be number one. Secondly, conflict between two people. That'll be our second point. And thirdly, we're going to look at conflict that is brought before the church. All of these are addressed and implied in our text today as well as other passages. How many, by just a show of hands, have heard us talk about church health here at Kelty's? Church health. That's most of you here in the room. We talk a lot about having a healthy church here. Healthy church, if, especially if, you're recently, if you've recently been through the Kelty's 101 class, you've heard me talk about this. A healthy church, having a healthy church is an elusive goal. That is, even if we get to a point where we look around and say, hey, I, I think our church, for the most part, is a healthy church. We're doing things well. Even if we get to that point, we cannot stop pursuing health, can we? No more than if I get to a certain uh, goal where I've lost the pounds I want to eat, uh, I've lost, wanted to lose, and uh, I've stopped eating my sweets, and I'm exercising, and I've reached those numbers, my, my lab work looks good, I can't just then go back to eating burgers and donuts and stop exercising. I've got to continue pursuing health, right? And so does the church. One key to maintaining a healthy church is to fight off infection and disease, if we're keeping with this health analogy. Infection and disease in the church, we know it as that little word called what? Sin. Sin. Of course, we'll never be a church without sin because we'll never be a church without what? Sinners. But we can confront sin confess sin, forgive sin, and when necessary, expose and expel sin from the church. Permanently? No. Completely? No. Just as our human bodies have an immune system made up of organs and cells and proteins that naturally defend the body against the disease, I looked that up on the Google, so that's accurate, the body of Christ is made up of members, each of us, who are designed and directed to defend the body against sin's ongoing spread. And we do this when we confront sin and confess sin and forgive sin and, when necessary, expose and expel sin. So what does this look like in the church? What does it look like when a church body is defending itself against Sickness. What does it look like when the church body is confronting sin and confessing sin and forgiving sin and when necessary exposing and expelling sin? Well, one of the main ways we do that is through handling conflict, confronting conflict. Conflict is opportunity to confess sin, confront sin, forgive sin, 
and when necessary, expose and expel sin. We do this when we confront one another. When sins, germs affect relationships and people within the church, healthy and biblical conflict resolution is necessary. This is what we do. But healthy and biblical conflict resolution is also difficult, isn't it? And awkward, isn't it? And absolutely no fun, is it? I mean, who here likes conflict? Nobody. Nobody likes conflict. And then you have the world saying, and maybe some of your own friends and family, or maybe your own sinful thoughts telling you, well, every difficult relationship, if there's if there's tension and conflict in relationship, that's toxic and you got to cut it off and let them go and move on and forget about it and don't look back, ignore them, stay bitter, talk about them, unfriend them, unfollow them, avoid interaction. You may even have to change churches just to avoid conflict. That's what the world says, right? The Bible says, bless those who persecute you, bless those in Do not curse them, Romans 12 and verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 18? If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let me read that one again. Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul tells us in Romans 15 that we are, as believers, we have all knowledge. We have the the knowledge, that is, in order to confront and admonish and counsel one another. We're all competent to counsel, to quote Jay Adams. We're admonished to counsel one another. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, be patient with all of them, helping the weak. Nobody likes confrontation. No more than anybody likes going to the doctor. Nobody likes taking medicine. But if we don't, we'll get sicker, right? Well, this practice of confrontation is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 18. To quote Pastor Paul Miller, he says this about conflict and confrontation. He said, love moves toward people even if that means confrontation. It doesn't leave them alone in their suffering or their selfishness. Jesus tells us how to practice biblical confrontation. Uh, This practice is so much more than Matthew 18, which is why I titled the sermon title, There's More to Matthew 18. In other words, Matthew 18 is just a a beginning. It's a good outline. It's a good pattern for conflict resolution. But we're going to look beyond that as well this morning. And I had Pastor Dave read the context before and after Matthew, the Matthew 18, verse 15 passage. Look back at Matthew 18. What is the parable just before the go to your brother and tell him his fault? The parable is of the lost sheep, pursuing a lost sheep. What is the parable right after the passage on pursuing a brother, the passage that we would know as church discipline? It's the parable of the unforgiving Serve it. You see, true biblical healthy confrontation is fueled with a desire that none should perish, like that one sheep that goes astray. 
and it's followed by a desire to forgive when necessary, even 77 times, or 7 times 70. That's love moving toward people. This is biblical conflict resolution. Well, let's kind of define our terms here for just a minute before we go further. What is conflict? Webster's Dictionary defines conflict as a clash between hostile or opposing elements or ideas. I like Ken Sandy's uh, description and definition. I want to commend to you a couple of books that I've put in the book nook. One is Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. This is probably the best book on peacemaking and reconciliation that's around. I encourage you to grab a copy of this or Robert Jones' book, Pursuing Peace, How to Confront in Conflict. If you've ever read Uprooting Anger by Robert Jones, same guy, very helpful brothers. Ken Sandy says in his book, Peacemakers, that a conflict is a difference in opinion of purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. A difference in opinion of purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. Or some of you, uh, probably teenagers now, remember when we did the Young Peacemakers on Sunday evenings during the summers years ago. Young Peacemaker, the children's version of Peacemaker, says that a conflict is a fight between people who think or act differently. Conflict can include preferential differences, disagreements, arguments, fights, quarrels, even lawsuits, and sinful offenses. All of that could be lumped into the category of what qualifies as conflict. As we talk about this, I'm not really going to use a lot of personal immediate anecdotes, but because conflict always happens, you may be tempted to think, are are you talking about me, Aaron, when you mention that? Look, I've got my own problems. I have my own internal conflicts. I have my own family that I manage. I have many people in mind. I have 20 to 30 years of ministry in mind when I talk about conflict. So am I talking about you? I don't know, maybe, but not on purpose. So let's look at these three areas of conflict. And even before we look at the three, I'm going to summarize them into four. Can I do that? Did you hear what I did? I'm going to summarize three into four. Conflict can be summarized this way. Check your heart, overlook, talk it out, or get help. When you have conflict with someone, check your own heart, or overlook it, or talk it out, or get help. Any of you are doing the kid zones, there's your answer. But let's start with Number one, these three points. Number one, conflict beginning in the heart. Conflict beginning in the heart. We know that all behavior originates from where? From the heart. We know that Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the wellspring of life. Jesus said in Mark 7, from within, out of the heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, okay, I'm, I haven't done any of those. He keeps saying it. Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within. So conflict 
begins from within. So conflict begins in the heart. So that we need to look in, look at, consider two looks as we look at conflict beginning in the heart. First is an inside look, and secondly, an overlook. Inside look. When you're dealing with conflict with someone else, whether that someone else knows it or not, where do you go? Where do you look first? You look inside first. You check yourself first. A friend of mine back in Arkansas called this ocular logitis. Ocular logitis. I don't even know how to spell that. Having to do with the eyes, ocular logitis, having to do with a log. You know where I'm going next? Jot down Matthew 7. You don't need to turn there. Most of you will be familiar with this. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how do you how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's, saying there is nev- he's not saying there's never a time to remove the speck. He said the first step in removing the speck is to remove the log. Most of us have ocular logitis. We don't see our own sin. So we need to look within this inside look. Now we're going to talk about what we kind of know as more formal public church discipline in just a minute. But do you know what it's called when you examine your own heart, when you look within to check yourself, to seek areas where you can repent of sin? You know what that's called? That's called self-discipline. Self-discipline. What should happen before we get to church discipline? There ought to be self-discipline. We ought to before we even ever try to address conflict publicly in what we know is the second step of church discipline, and even before we even try to address conflict privately, one-on-one, me with another brother or sister, the Bible tells us that we must address conflict personally within ourselves. Does that make sense? We start inwardly. We look inside. How do we do this? Well, I could spend hours talking about this, and all of you are saying, yes, we know you could. But let me direct your attention to James chapter 4. Dave is laughing the hardest. James chapter 4. Would you turn there with me right after the book of Hebrews near the back? If you and I have ever done any kind of counsel or discipleship, we've talked about James chapter 4. Wouldn't you like to know, parents, why your children fuss and fight? Any of you, would you like to know that? I I know. Wouldn't you like to know, husbands and wives, why you argue and fuss and fight? I know. And I may not have ever been in your house. And I don't have it bugged. James says in chapter 4, verse 1, he asked a question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? James, tell me. I want to know. Why am I having problems with other people? What's going on between us? What's James' answer? Is it not this? Your passions are at war where? Within you. Within you. The reason I have conflict outside of myself with other people is because there's already a conflict going within myself, you see? 
Notice the other words for uh, these ideas of passions and desires. Your passions are at war within you, verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So why do I look inside? Because when there's a conflict outside, you begin by looking inside to see what is it that I'm wanting that I'm not getting. That's the first thing I try to ask myself when I have a problem with somebody else. What am I wanting right now that I'm not getting? That's looking inward. And the problem is these desires, the things that I'm wanting might be good, might be right, might be biblical. Listen to Robert Jones in his book, Pursuing Peace, that I just recommended. He gives a list of scenarios, and he suggests listening to what these have in common. Maybe you are... Someone, a a woman who desires a husband who loves you as you are unconditionally. Maybe you desire a boss who notices you, appreciates you, and commends your work. Maybe you're a child, a, a parent who desires a child that would obey you and respect you. Maybe you desire a father who will spend time with you. Maybe you desire a wife who fulfills you intimately. Maybe you desire a pastor who will visit you or teach on topics you think we need to hear. Maybe you desire a neighbor who will muzzle his dog barking in the middle of the night. Maybe you desire a coach who will play you enough. Maybe you desire a teacher who will grade you fairly. Maybe you desire a roommate who will pick up their clothes and clean the kitchen sink and load the dishwasher the right way. Because yes, there is a right way to load a dishwasher. Maybe you desire the highway department to fix the roads already. And what do these have in common? None of these desires are inherently sinful, are they? And as I said, some of them are biblical. Children obeying and wives and husbands serving and loving one another and pastors pastoring. This list that Robert Jones gives is a list of desires, but what happens when my desires go unmet and I'm trying to hold them with an open hand, I then close my hands and those desires become demands. Not only do I want these things, I will get these things. I must have these things. And what does that cause in my heart? It causes conflict when I'm not getting what I'm wanting. Robert Jones says, the problem is that these desires have become heart-controlling desires. And the list of candidates is endless. We can demand affection, attention, approval, admiration, acceptance, appreciation, But when we demand these things, conflict will surely arise. So the first step in biblical conflict, beginning in the heart, is to look within. How do I do that? Can I suggest a prayer straight from the Bible? Maybe you've got memorized Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Write that down. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. You'll recognize it. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked thing or unclean thing in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know that prayer at the end of Psalm 139? Search me, know me, try me, show me, lead me. It's how I summarize it in my mind. When you have a conflict with another person, look inside first. Lord, search me. Where might I be wrong in this conflict? And then once you did the inward look, next you do the overlook. You ask yourself... Okay, I think I'm okay here. I think my heart is right. I've confessed my 
own sin, ask yourself a question. Can, can I overlook this? Can I, in good conscience, overlook this unmet desire? Even if it's a biblical desire. Even if it's a personal offense. Even if it escalates to a sin against me. Can I overlook it? Some of you say, well, should we overlook it? The Bible says love covers a multitude of sin, all offenses. Proverbs 10, 12. Proverbs 17, 9. Love, or whoever covers an offense seeks love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 17. Love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. Can we overlook it? We might. Should we? We might should overlook it. Remember what the world's telling you. The world's telling you, ah, remember your rights. Ah, you've got the right to do something and to say something. You have a social right, maybe, or maybe you even have a legal right. Maybe. Maybe, but not everything that's lawful is helpful, right? Do you remember what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6? He was finding out that believers were going to court suing one another. And he said, instead of going to court, why not rather suffer wrong? You may have a legal right to be right. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather, he says in verse 7, be defrauded? Why? To help resolve conflict. He says in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, be careful that this right of yours, these liberties, these rights, do not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So I look inside, I check my own heart. Can I overlook? I'm asking that question. Can I just overlook it? How do I know I can overlook it? Similar to how do you know you've forgiven someone? Can you say in good conscience, I'm committed to not bringing this up to that person, whatever this conflict is, I'm committed. Then maybe you can overlook it. I'm committed to not bringing it up to others. I'm not going to gossip about it. I'm not going to tell anyone else about it. Why? Because I'm overlooking it. I'm committed to not bringing it up in my own mind. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to become bitter. And I'm committed to when I'm tempted to do any of these things, I'm going to bring it to the Lord. If you can do that, you can overlook it. If you can't, with a clear conscience, overlook. And, and again, perhaps you, maybe you shouldn't overlook it. Then what do you do? Then you go. Then you go to that person. And that's where we move from conflict beginning in the heart to number two, conflict between two people. Conflict between two people. Now let me just suggest and recommend that this process that we begin talking about can be used anywhere. Don't necessarily think of large church uh, context. We practiced this pattern with our children as they were growing up. On any given day, child A would come to Anita or me and have some sort of complaint. Mom, so-and-so is uh, supposed to be cleaning the room with us and they're not doing it. I won't leave any names or mention any names. It could be any combination of four children. Anita and I would immediately say, okay, our first question to them would be, do you think you could overlook this? And sometimes they would say, okay. And they would go and they would overlook it. And sometimes they would say, no, I I don't think I can overlook it. This happens all the time. 
So then our second question would be, okay, have you talked to them about it before you talk to me about it? We're trying to get them to resolve conflict biblically. Eventually, they knew the questions, and so they would come with their complaints, and they already had the answers. Mom, so-and-so did such-and-such, and no, I can't overlook it, and yes, I've talked to him. Would you say something? And then we would step in. Or maybe this is within the church with something more significant. Maybe it's a member coming to a pastor to discuss a conflict with another member. One of the first things I'm going to ask if someone comes to me for help and if someone comes to you for help or advice, I'm going to say, have you talked to the person about this? And if you haven't, then you need to be careful what you're telling me about this. Sometimes I'll say, do you think you can overlook this? But because we're usually dealing with more mature, older believers, I'm assuming they can't overlook it, which is why they came. If they haven't talked to the person about it, I make it very clear, I don't want to know who it is. You can maybe ask my advice, but once I know who it is, once someone comes you to you with a problem with someone else and you know who it is, guess what? You're in. You're obligated. You're now a part of the circle, and you need to be committed to help bring resolve. Please don't do this. Don't do this. Come for advice. Come for counsel, but don't unnecessarily, prematurely bring others in the circle. I'm going to explain why in just a moment. In fact, when someone comes to me and says, can I tell you something in confidence and you never, you promise not to tell anybody, I never agree to that. Never. Because number one, they could be telling me something that's going to put themselves or others in danger, and I'm obligated to say something. But if they come to me and say, so-and-so did such-and-such to me and don't tell them, I'm obligated as a brother in Christ. So you've tried and you've prayed and you've endured and you don't think you've looked inside and you don't think you can overlook. So now it's time to go to the one who's offended you. Step two, conflict between two people. Look back at our passage, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, everything I've said so far is like a preliminary step. Before we even get to Matthew 18, verse 15, you've checked your heart. You've looked inside. You've asked yourself, can I overlook this? Are you with me so far? Now we get to it's time to go to that person. Why does he say go to the person alone? Between you and him alone or you and her alone. The idea here Jesus has in mind is we want to keep the circle small. We always want to keep the circle small. That's going to come up again. Let me be very clear. If someone is not a part of the problem or a part of the solution, they don't need to be a part of the conversation. You're not keeping the circle small. You're on the precipice, if not of gossip. Unless you're seeking help, of course. You need some counsel, but we've talked about that. We're going to be discreet. Tell me what you might do in this situation. That's hard to do. I understand that. And by the way, all of this is hard to do. And none of this is an exact science. These are biblical patterns and principles. The purpose of going one-to-one, says Alexander Strzok in his book, Do Not Bite and Devour One Another. Strzok says the purpose here is to seek and to save, not to seek and destroy. I'm not coming after you because I want to hurt you. I'm coming after you because I want to be reconciled with you. 
He suggests that privacy protects the offender from humiliation. You ever rebuked someone publicly unnecessarily? How did that go? Probably not well. They didn't appreciate it. Privacy protects from humiliation. Privacy preserves unity in the church. No one else needs to know about this right now. Maybe eventually. We'll get to that in just a moment. Privacy makes the confrontation more winsome. Hey, can I, can I talk to you for a minute? I just I noticed or I, I heard something that I don't know if you heard that, but I wanted to bring that to your attention. Privacy. We've had to confront a brother once in the church who said some things that were inappropriate and just a couple of people knew about this and we approached him and confronted him and let him know and he was quick to repent, quick to seek forgiveness and we assured him because only a few people knew no one else will know and no one else will ever know because we kept the circle small one-on-one. Still talking about preliminary thoughts here of going one-on-one. How urgent is this for me to go to someone I've offended? Go to someone with whom I'm in conflict. Listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother... And then come and offer your gift. Again, quoting Alexander Strzok, says, even if you're in the most solemn act of worship, you stop and you go and you be reconciled. That's urgent, isn't it? John MacArthur said it this way, reconciliation precedes worship. Tonight's Lord's Supper. You planning on coming and celebrating and preparing and Is there someone you need to talk to first? We always give you a heads up so that you can make right any wrongs, reconcile any relationships. I remember a dear brother back in Arkansas, we were holding each other accountable as men, young men, young married men and fathers, and we would check in on each other weekly and ask each other hard questions. And one Sunday I walked into church and he's sitting there in the lobby waiting for me. And he said, I need to talk to you before we go in. He said, I I lied to you this week. I lied to you and I said some things that weren't true and I need to seek your forgiveness. He wasn't ready to worship until he reconciled. That's the idea here. That's how urgent it is. How important is it? James says if we seek someone who is wandering, a sinner who is wandering, James 5 says you will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Your confrontation, as hard as it may be, might be the tool God uses to pull another believer from the brink of destruction. If you hadn't have said anything to me, I would have continued down that path. Is it hard to confront? Is it awkward to confront? Yes. Is it right and necessary to confront? Many times, yes. I think of the, the man in Proverbs 5 that was guilty of sexual sin, and he calls out, oh, if I had only listened to instruction and to counsel, and now I'm ruined in the assembly of the congregation. Go to that person. Go one-on-one. That is the first step. If your brother sins against you, tell him his fault between you and him alone, one-on-one. And look at verse 15. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, and that's the goal. The goal is not 
to destroy. The goal is to gain. I want to gain you back as a brother or a sister. This is always the goal. How do I do this? Well, most conflict should be resolved and thankfully is resolved. Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's over a cup of coffee. Maybe it's a private meeting. We're to do it, according to Galatians 6, in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. Galatians 6, 1. Again, remember 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love bears all, believes all, hopes all, endures all. Remember the context of Matthew 18. You're pursuing a lost sheep, perhaps. Or the following passage, you're ready and willing to forgive again and again and again. If you're angry... And maybe you even think, I I think it's righteous anger because I've been sinned against. You can't respond in anger because then you've sinned, so you don't go in unrighteous anger. You go to the person. You're assuming the best. You're hoping for the best. Maybe they didn't even realize what they did or said, and maybe you say something like this. Hey, brother, sister, I don't know if you, you realize this, but when you said this or did this the other day, I felt like it was unfair or unkind or maybe sinful or harsh or untrue. And I, did, I just wanted you to know, I wanted to bring it to your attention. Again, I, maybe you didn't realize that. Maybe that person says, I, I had no idea. I'm, I'm so sorry. Please, please forgive me for that. That won't happen again. You forgive them, it's over. You've restored a brother. No one needs to know. The circle stays small. It's done. Or they say, you know, you're right. I I realize I said that. I realize I did that. And not long afterward, I started really feeling guilty. And I should have come to you first. But thank you for coming to me. Please forgive me. You forgive them. It's over. You've gained a brother or sister. Or they say, really? I I had no idea. Honestly, I don't don't think what I said or did was wrong. I, I didn't mean to offend you, but I... I don't think I did anything wrong. So now there's a disagreement here over the issue. Well, then you go back to step one. Okay, can, can I overlook this? Do you trust their intentions? You overlook it. But if you can't, what do you do? You, you move forward. You move forward. Maybe the person says, you know, yeah, I know what I said. I know what I did. And you need to drop it. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to talk about it. Mind your own business. Well, then it's clear There is no realization, there is no confession, there is no repentance, and it's clear in this situation you want to move forward. So you've gone one-on-one, you've checked your heart, you've looked inside, you've asked if you could overlook, you've gone one-on-one, now you need to take two or three witnesses. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Why do you want to take a witness? We're slowly expanding the circle. Not unnecessarily, but slowly. What's the purpose? Well, maybe they witnessed the actual offense. Hey, you were there the other day when so-and-so did such and such. Did, did I hear what you heard? No, I, no, I didn't think anything about that. Uh, okay, okay. Maybe I, maybe I was, maybe I misunderstood it. Over, done. Doesn't need to go any further. Or maybe they heard what was said and done, and they said, "Yeah, I kind of thought the same thing." And you tell them, "I've gone to them. I've confronted them. Would you go with me to try to plead with them again?" 
Now, if they didn't witness the offense, please be careful. Please be careful here. Don't go looking too hard lest you plant ideas into people's head. Hey, have you ever noticed so-and-so does such and such? No, I've never known. Oh, man, now that you mention it, I, I guess I could see that. Well, now you're planting seeds of possible dissension in their heads. You've got to be careful there. That could be dangerous. You want to be discreet as possible. Can you give me advice here with this person? What would you do? And then maybe they go with you. They will either witness the actual offense. Maybe they're going to witness the offended person's response. Uh, rather, the offended person's confrontation. Can I watch and see how you confront them? Maybe you're being very angry. Maybe you're not doing this well. They'll witness the offending party's response. They'll help make an appeal for repentance. That's why you bring two or three witnesses. They'll help serve as a mediator. You know, I can, I can see their point here, what they're saying, and I understand what you're saying. Can, can you guys kind of see what you're, maybe you're talking past one another? So they help mediate. Maybe they help the offended, again, realize, okay, I don't think this is an issue. I don't think it's an issue. The witness will help ensure justice and fairness. The witness is in keeping with Old Testament practices. Proverbs and Deuteronomy both say that you must have two or three witnesses to establish a charge. And again, what's the goal? What's the goal? The goal is restoration. The goal is someone repents. The goal is someone returns. If you get restoration, you get repentance, you get reconciliation, good, confess, forgive, it's over. It doesn't move forward. And if you don't, if you don't get reconciliation, your witness or witnesses sees how this played out. Maybe they can give an additional exhortation to the offender, offer insight into what needs to happen. If there's still no reconciliation, then we go from conflict beginning in the heart, number one, conflict between two people, number two, to now, number three, conflict being brought to the church. Number three, conflict being brought to the church. Let's hurry here. If possible, if possible, without widening the circle too broad, perhaps you try again and again. If you want reconciliation, brother, sister, if you want reconciliation, you will really, really try as far as it depends on you. Don't just try a least common denominator. Well, I sent them a text and they never responded, so I guess it's over. No, you pursue, you pursue, you pursue. Maybe after weeks or months of pursuit of attempted reconciliation. Then you bring your offense to the church. Why? Jesus said so. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, to you and your witnesses, tell it to the church. Jesus said, tell it to the church. Other people don't have any right to hear my dirty laundry, know my dirty laundry. No, they don't necessarily. But if you refuse to repent, we've got to deal with this. Maybe that's an objection. But shouldn't the church be a place of grace and forgiveness? Yes, that's right. And it is when there's confession and repentance. We show grace and forgiveness. Jesus said, tell it to the church. The church should be all about love, right? Why are we telling it to the church? Because Jesus said, tell it to the church. And the Lord disciplines those he what? He loves. It is a loving thing to confront sin. Consider, again, Paul's admonition to the Corinthians. 
He said, do you dare go to law before the unrighteous, before you would be willing to take it to the saints? Paul is assuming they're going to take their conflicts, even in their civil suits, to the church for reconciliation and mediation. Paul couldn't imagine taking a conflict outside the church. So who is the church? Well, we know the church is any local body of baptized believers who have covenanted together in unity. We have four today. All of you who are members here were promised to to mutually encourage one another and edify another another and practice the one another. But so that that the dirty laundry doesn't get aired out unnecessarily, and in order to keep the circle small, bringing it to the church would probably and most logically begin with leadership, begin with the pastoral leadership. We want to keep the circle small. If there's an unreconciled relationship or an unrepentant sin issue with a member that you're aware of, only after multiple attempts at patient and persistent pursuing the offender, then it's time to let the pastors know. At this point, the pastoral leadership, with the help of the offended party, will begin yet another patient and persistent pursuit of the offender. Why? Because remember the goal. We want to gain back a brother or sister. Could I be very vulnerable for just a moment? Hear this, please. This is where your pastors need your prayers. This is where your pastors need prayers for wisdom. We need insight. We need discernment when these things are brought to us. Because every situation is different. And there are a million different factors in any scenario. Two separate accounts of what seem to be just clear and plain adultery might have a million different factors and details. They won't be the same. We've got to know, is this person telling us the truth? Are they telling us the whole truth? Are they leaving out significant details? We've got to discern that. Is one side being petty? Is both sides being petty? Are we being too hard with one person? Have we been too easy with another person? Well, you went after this person or you talked to that person and you didn't do that person or that person. I know. I know. Because it's not a perfect process. Because we're not perfect pastors. This weighs on the pastors. I can speak for myself at least. Why should it be pastors first? Because they have the greater and higher accountability. Listen to Hebrews 13, 17. You've been through the 101 class, and I've taught week three. I've ended with this passage, and I've said almost the exact thing I'm about to say to you now. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For, because, they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I don't know what this is going to look like when I stand before the Lord. But one day, I will, Dave will, Paul will, Chris will, any other pastors, elders we have in this church will have to answer for those whom God puts in our care. And to be honest, that frightens the daylights out of me. I don't like it. We don't always get it right. So would you pray for your pastors? in this regard? Would you? Maybe a few more? I try to remember this, though. It's not easy. I can risk offending the church member, 
or I can risk offending the Lord. You tell me where I'm safer. They bring it to the pastors. The pastors pursue persistently, patiently, after weeks, months, beloved, sometimes over a year of pleading and pursuing. They then let the offended person know who hasn't confessed, who hasn't repented, we have no choice but to follow Jesus' commandments and tell it to the church. We've got to let your church family know. We might give them a, a final deadline. If we have a members meeting coming up next Sunday night, actually, we might say our next members meeting is this particular date. If you call us or text us at 459, we will stop the process and we will meet with you as soon as possible and we'll start reconciling. That's how much we want restoration. But if they don't, you've left us no choice, but we need to tell your brothers and sisters so that they can also pursue. Do you hear the patience in this process? Do you hear the grace? Do you see the grace? Do you understand the grief involved in this process? You can know, and we tell you this, if ever a church discipline case is brought publicly at a member meeting, you can know for sure we have spent a lot of time on this. And hopefully it started way back at step one where people are checking their hearts and trying to overlook and going one-on-one and going two or three and then it finally comes here. After a long, patient, pleading, urging, weeping, exhorting, admonishing, begging time with the offender. And then Jesus says, Jesus says, verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Gentiles and tax collectors, said one commentator, were excluded from the social life of devout Jews. Gentiles and tax collectors are considered unbelievers. So we're to treat an unrepentant member, a persistently hardened, unrepentant member, treat them as if, I'm being very careful with my words, as if they were an unbeliever. Why? Because they're acting like an unbeliever. Why? Because they're not repenting. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you've been outside the church looking in and you think all you Christians think you're perfect. No. Christians and non-Christians are the same in that we both sin, right? But the difference between Christians and non-Christians is when Christians sin, Christians repent. If you're a Christian, you're a repenter. If you're not a repenter, you're probably not a Christian. In Russia, the former Soviet Union, they used to call Christians repenters. Paul says, treat them as if they're an unbeliever. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, who says they're a Christian, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, don't even eat with such a one. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul, why such hard words? Because Paul said elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 5, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Purging the person from you Telling someone we can no longer treat you as a believer. You are welcome to attend here, but you can't partake of the supper. You can't consider yourself a member. You can't serve here. This prevents the Lord from being dishonored should they continue to 
act in blatantly sinful ways. It protects other believers from being led astray by a bad example or poisoned. It may help the rebellious person realize the seriousness of his or her sin when it's been made public. We had a a policy that we always disciplined our children privately. It was in a room. No one else needs to know about it. But every now and then on a van ride home, when people are getting a little out of line, we've had to stop. We've had to administer the rod in front of the other siblings. We didn't like it, but I can assure you the car ride was quiet the rest of the way home. Public confrontation is often necessary. You willing to do this? Check your own heart. Go one-on-one. Go two or three-on-one. Can I just end very quickly with a greater conflict we have? It's point four, but it's not in your bulletin. It's a conflict between God and man. You see, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you were born in conflict already. You have offended a holy God. And that God must punish your sin. He must discipline you. And the wages of sin is death. But the good news is there is a reconciler. There is a mediator. Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, who lived the perfect life you and I couldn't live, died to death on the cross, paying our sin debt, rose from the grave, proving he has the power to reconcile a holy God with sinful man. And this Christ Jesus is who you need to be going to. My friend, be reconciled to God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, be reconciled to God. That is my appeal to you. If you're a believer, remember Matthew 18. Remember this context. You were once the lost sheep that Jesus sought after. Remember the context. You have been forgiven billions of dollars of sin debt. Can you not forgive someone else of a much lesser debt? That's biblical conflict resolution. That's what keeps a church healthy. Let's pray. Father, make us a healthy church. Keep us a healthy church. Help us to be reconcilers. Help us to pursue these kind of relationships with love and grace to seek and to save, not to seek and destroy. For your glory and for the health of the church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.